hands hold the leashes and the right hands hold the torches and grandpa's holding shotguns swing on porch swings on porches and the grandmas in their gardens plant more seeds to cut their losses and the poachers with the pooches and the nooses preheat crosses and the pooches see their grandpas and they bare their teeth and growl while their owners turn their noses up like they smell something foul and they fumble with their crosses and they start to mumble curses and they plot ways to get grandpas off of porches into hearses but the grandpas on the porches are just scarecrows holding toys and the grandmas in the gardens are paper mache decoys while the real grandmas and grandpas are with all the girls and boys marching downtown to the city hall to make a lot of noise saying hands up Because I had a dream, dream we tore this racist broken system apart at the seams. Sometimes it seems like we've reached the end of the road. We've seen cops and judges sleep together wearing long white robes. And they put their white hoods up, try to take the black hoods down. And they don't plan on stopping till we're all in the ground. Till we're dead in the ground or we're incarcerated cause Brit a big business form of enslavement plantations that profit on black folks in cages. They'll break our backs and keep the wages. It's outrageous that there's no place we can feel safe in this nation. Not in our cars, not at the park, not in subway stations, not at church, the pool, the store, not asking for help, not walking down the street. So we've got apart at the seams. You tweet me my own lyrics. Tell me to stop letting a few bad apples ruin the bunch. Don't minimize the fight comparing apples to cops. This is about the orchards, poison roots, not loose fruits in a box. Once the soil's been spoiled, the whole crop's corrupt. That's why we need the grassroots working from the ground up. And we look to black Twitter to stay woke and get some truth instead of smiling cops and black monk shots from biased corporate news. Cause if you steal cigarellos or you sell loose cigarettes or you forget your turn signal, will they see your skin as a threat? Will they kill you and then smear you and cover it up and lie? Will they call it self-defense? Will they call it suicide? Hands up. can't 
lives are torn down. We'll just keep on placing flowers for the boy whose body was in the road for more than four hours. We will honor the dead of every age and every gender, because we can't just have it be the brothers' names that we remember. Oh, black boys with skateboards and black boys with hoodies and little black girls who are on the couch sleeping and all of the black trans women massacred too many black folks killed and brutalized and there's no justice served after the lynchings of our people by the murderous police who stand like hunters round their prey gasping helpless in the street feet from the teen sister they tackled and locked handcuffed in the car feet from her 12 year old brother dying while no one did CPR and we'll keep on planting flowers and we'll fight until the day that we don't have to pick them all to put them all on graves yeah we'll keep planting flowers and we'll fight until the day that we don't have to pick them all to put them all on graves hands up And that was Kimion Dawson with the track At The Seams. You can find that on the um, compilation album Hugs for Chelsea, which was a fundraising album for Chelsea Manning. Greetings and welcome to Bernie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com. You can follow on Twitter at BernieUS2020. You can check out all the back episodes and find some links to make a donation at Bernie-2020.com. The murder of George Floyd was another atrocious incident of police brutality and the frequent and common fact that they get away with it unscathed. Uh, At this moment, those police officers who were involved in George Floyd's murder do have charges being brought against them, uh, which is often not the case. And that's not the case because of an enlightened police force in Minneapolis. That's the case because of global protests that forced that police department and those prosecutors to take action. We'll see where that action leads in the rare case of other officers who are charged with the murder of unarmed, primarily black victims. Many of those who do get charges brought do not get convicted. People are in the streets in the U.S. and all over the world It is a remarkable response. Um, And it's only remarkable in its breadth and in its impact. There were similar responses on a smaller scale for Mike Brown, for Freddie Gray, for Sandra Bland, and for others. But maybe circumstances 
at the moment will make this one have a bigger, more lasting impact. It certainly has reached to places that no other protest has reached since the 1960s. It's reached into the corporate boardrooms, which um, rarely are touched. And many of those corporations are putting out statements and a few of those statements are strong and powerful. This perhaps is the most powerful one. It's certainly the most powerful one I have seen. All of us at Ben and Jerry's are outraged about the murder of another black person by Minneapolis police officers last week and the continued violent response by police against protesters. We have to speak out. We have to stand together with the victims of murder, marginalization, and repression because of their skin color. And with those who seek justice through protests across our country, we have to say his name, George Floyd. George Floyd was a son, a brother, a father, and a friend. The police officer who put his knee on George Floyd's neck and the police officers who stood by and watched didn't just murder George Floyd. They stole him. They stole him from his family and his friends, his church and his community, and from his own future. The murder of George Floyd was a result of inhumane police brutality that is perpetuated by a culture of white supremacy. What happened to George Floyd was not the result of a bad apple. It was the predictable consequence of a racist and prejudiced system and culture that has treated black bodies as the enemy from the beginning. What happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis is the fruit born of toxic seeds planted on the shores of our country in Jamestown in 1619 when the first enslaved men and women arrived on this continent. Floyd is the latest in a long list of names that stretches back to that time and that shore. Some of those names we know, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Oscar Grant, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Emmett Till, Martin Luther King Jr. Most we don't. The officers who's, who murdered George Floyd, who stole him from those who loved him, must be brought to justice. At the same time, we must embark on the more complicated work of delivering justice for all the victims of state-sponsored violence and racism. Four years ago, we publicly stated our support for the Black Lives Matter movement. Today, we want to be even more clear about the urgent need to take concrete steps to dismantle white supremacy in all its forms. To do that, we are calling for four things. First, we call upon President Trump elected officials and political parties to commit our nation to a formal process of healing and reconciliation. Instead of calling for the use of aggressive tactics on protesters, the president must take the first step by disavowing white supremacists and nationalist groups that overtly support him, and by not using his Twitter feed to promote and normalize their ideas and agendas. The world is watching America's response. Second, we call upon the Congress to pass H.R. 40, legislation that would create a commission to study the effects of slavery and discrimination from 1619 to the present and recommend appropriate remedies. We cannot move forward together as a nation until we begin to grapple with the sins of our past. Slavery, Jim Crow, and segregation were systems of legalized and monetized white supremacy for which generations of black and brown people paid an immeasurable price. That cost must be acknowledged and the privilege that accrued to some at the expense of others must be reckoned with and redressed. Third, we support Floyd's family's call to create a national task force that would draft bipartisan legislation aimed at ending racial violence and increasing police accountability. 
We can't continue to fund a criminal justice system that perpetuates mass incarceration while at the same time threatens the lives of a whole segment of the population. And finally, we call on the Department of Justice to reinvigorate its Civil Rights Division as a staunch defender of the rights of black and brown people. The DOJ must also reinstate policies rolled back under the Trump administration, such as consent decrees, to curb police abuses. Unless and until white America is willing to collectively acknowledge its privilege, take responsibility for its past and the impact it has on the present, and commit to creating a future steeped in justice, the list of names that George Floyd has been added to will never end. We have to use this moment to accelerate our nation's long journey towards justice and a more perfect union. Next up is a piece published at gen.medium.com. This is written by Jessica Valenti. Police are hurting people because they want to. In at least 30 cities this weekend, protests spread over the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. In an ironic and entirely predictable twist, police officers in city after city responded to the demonstrations against their brutality with yet more violence. Cop cars in Brooklyn mowed down crowds of protesters. The National Guard in Minneapolis shot paint canisters at residents standing on their own porches. A Pennsylvania officer was filmed kicking a teenager who was already sitting on the ground, her hands covering her face. An officer in Utah knocked over an elderly man walking with a cane, and across the country officers shot journalists with rubber bullets once on live TV, arrested reporters, and pepper-sprayed members of the press even as they clearly identified themselves as working journalists. With each new video shared on social media, it became increasingly clear that police officers were the ones escalating the violence. Their attacks on civilians were not made in self-defense or because they were needed to maintain order. Police hurt people because they wanted to. In response, conservatives bemoaned property destruction and theft. The president even tweeted that, quote, looters should be shot, as if broken windows or stolen clothing could compare to the thousands of lives lost to police violence. This focus is not accidental. By painting mostly peaceful protesters as criminals, those on the right hope it will provide cover for and distract from the unchecked thuggery of police officers across the U.S. But there is no both sides argument to be made here. Police officers armed and armored act with the power of the state behind them. Protesters have no such power. Cops are tasked with protecting the community and de-escalating tensions. Protesters have no such responsibility. To act as if, as if this is a fight between equals is ridiculous. Equally ludicrous is the idea that police officers need to be aggressive in their own defense. In response to the video of a police vehicle running over protesters, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said, quote, If those protesters had just gotten out of the way and not created an attempt to surround that vehicle, we would not be talking about this. But restraint is part of a police officer's job, and it is something they're absolutely capable of. It was just a few weeks ago, after all, that heavily armed white men stormed into the the Michigan Capitol building to express their anger over the coronavirus stay-at-home order. None of those armed and angry protesters were beaten, tear-gassed, or shot with rubber bullets. Nor was there any retaliative violence in Sacramento when white people screamed and rushed police officers as part of their protest against the lockdown. Police violence is a choice. In fact, videos this weekend showed that some officers, including one who maced a little girl, covered their badge numbers with black tape to avoid identification, a decision that suggests they knew they'd be engaging in illegal and violent behavior. 
Some have called for the police to be defunded or demanded that the country moves towards restorative justice instead of the punitive model that harms so many black Americans. Whatever comes next, there must be a reckoning with the way violence and racism are embedded in the very foundation of American policing. That reckoning will never happen under President Donald Trump. On Sunday afternoon, the president tweeted that mayors and governors need to get tough on protesters. The only people that state leaders need to get tough on right now are police officers. If it wasn't for them, people wouldn't be on the streets to begin with. By the time this column publishes, there will be who knows how many more examples of police violence. Not because it was necessary or accidental or defensive, but because it was desired. And that last line is imminently evident as I read this on Friday, June the 5th. The latest viral video shows an elderly man approaching a line of police not really a line but but more more of a mass or a group that are in a, a relatively open square from what you can see in the video and he's talking to them and they move towards him they move right up to him and the first couple officers pause And then an officer comes up behind them, apparently says, push them back. And then those two officers in front reach out and push that man. And you see him fall back, hit his head on the concrete and start bleeding from his ear. Now, I understand that he is alive and and I hope he is doing well. But, um. I saw another post today related to that, that same officer who came up behind the first two and said, push them back, was seen kneeling with protesters the day before in in an act that was turned into a, a PR stunt, as many of those are. Next up is a piece written by Malika Jabali, published at The Guardian, theguardian.com. If you're surprised by how the police are acting, you don't understand U.S. history. Amid worldwide protests against the police killing of George Floyd, activists around the U.S. have raised demands for specific policy measures, such as defunding the police. Justifying these demands are the images emerging from protests, with police officers ramming protesters in vehicles, indiscriminately attacking protesters with pepper spray, and exerting excessive force. Local and state policing budgets have nearly tripled since 1977, despite declining crime rates. Even people unfamiliar with the police and prison abolitionist movement are starting, rightly, to envision that public spending could be used more socially responsible ways. But beyond the fiscal argument is an ethical one. Policing in America cannot be reformed because it is designed for violence. The oppression is a feature, not a bug. That seems like a radical statement only because policing is so normalized in American culture, with depictions in popular media ranging from hapless donut-chugging dopes to tough crime-fighting heroes. We even have a baseball team named after a police organization, the Texas Rangers. But it's time to look beyond the romanticization of American police and get real. Just as America glorifies the military and Wall Street, and some Americans whitewash the Confederate flag and plantation homes, the history of policing is steeped in blood. In fact, the Texas Rangers are named after a group of white men of the same name who slaughtered Comanche Indians in, 19, in 1841 to steal indigenous territory and expand the frontier westward. The Rangers are considered the first state police organization. 
Likewise, as black people fought for their freedom from slavery by escaping north, slave patrols were established to bring us back to captivity. Many researchers consider slave patrols as a direct forerunner of modern American law enforcement. In northern, quote, free states, police precincts developed in emerging industrial cities to control what economic elites referred to as rioting, which was, quote, the only effective political strategy available to exploited workers. But as described in the text Community Policing, this rioting was, quote, actually a primitive form of what would become union strikes against employers, and the modern police force not only provided an organized centralized body of men, and they were all male, legally authorized to use force to maintain order. It also provided the illusion that this order was being maintained under the rule of law, not at the whim of those with economic power. In other words, police were never created to protect and serve the masses in our legislative and judicial systems, from Congress to the courts to the prosecutors, have made this clear. Congress's 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, for instance, incentivized law enforcement officials to capture Africans suspected of running away from slavery, paying officials more money to return them to slave owners than to free them. Instead of expanding the American political project to embrace black people as free citizens, our institutions made caveats to exclude them from the country's founding principles. Historically, most black people were not considered human, let alone citizens worthy of police or constitutional protection. We were property, even free blacks were, at best, second-class citizens, whose status could be demoted at any white person's whims, who fundamentally had, quote, no rights which the white man was bound to respect, as the Supreme Court affirmed in 1856. Modern court rulings have steadily eroded civil liberties to give police more power and permit racially discriminatory policing, convictions, and sentencing. This entrenched history of violent white supremacy is a lot to attempt to reform. So just as 19th century abolitionists set the terms of their fight beyond incremental improvements to slavery, abolitionists today assert that policing and incarceration must move past modest proposals that fundamentally maintain the system. The billions of dollars that governments spend on increasingly militarized police can be better used to address the underlying socioeconomic conditions that contribute to police encounters. We should divert resources towards investments in mental health, public education, drug prevention programs, homeless prevention, community-centered crime prevention, and jobs development. The immediate aftermath of George Floyd's killing felt like another police encounter that would lead to yet another viral hashtag with little police reform. But the work of abolitionists has set the bar even higher. We should move past calls for criminal justice reform and instead make demands for freedom. Next up, a piece written by Trevor Tim. Published at TheIntercept.com We are witnessing a truly unprecedented attack on press freedom in the United States, with journalists being systematically targeted while covering the nationwide protests over the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. The scale of the attacks is so large it can be hard to fathom. At the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, a project of Freedom of the Press Foundation and the Committee to Protect Journalists, we cataloged 150 press freedom violations in the United States in all of 2019. We are currently investigating 280 from just the last week. The crisis has rightly generated international outrage. Some have pushed a narrative fueled by commonly used phrases like journalists are being attacked by police and protesters alike, that police and protesters are attacking journalists at relatively equal rates. Our data shows this is incorrect. Police are responsible for the vast majority of assaults on journalists, over 80%. 
At the tracker, we document violence against journalists from all perpetrators, whether it comes from the police, protesters, or bat-wielding racist vigilantes. Yes, that really happened. And the data could not be more clear. Here's a breakdown of our preliminary numbers as of the morning of June 4. 279 plus total press freedom incidents. 45 plus arrests, 180 assaults, 149 of them by police, 40 equipment or newsroom damaged. Assault category breakdown, 67 physical attacks, 42 of which were by police, 40 tear gassings, 23 pepper sprayings, 69 rubber bullets or projectiles. As you can see, out of the 180 assaults we are investigating, 149 of them have been by police. That's almost 83%. We further break down the tracker's assaults category into several subcategories. For our tracking purposes, assaults can mean physical attacks, but also tear gassing, pepper spraying, or being fired upon with rubber bullets and other projectiles. Even if you remove all the times police have purposefully fired on, and seriously injured journalists with their extremely dangerous, quote, crowd control weapons. The police have physically assaulted journalists at a greater rate as well. Out of the 67 physical assaults, 42 have been by police. Further, some of the assaults from private citizens have not come from protesters either. For example, WHYY reporter John Ahrens was beaten up by what appears to be police-aligned white nationalists in Philadelphia. Many of the attacks by police have been targeted. There are now literally dozens of videos showing journalists, sometimes live on national television, with cameras, microphones, and press badges, clearly indicating to police that they are with the media, only to find officers purposefully firing dangerous projectiles at them anyway. Last night, journalist Amin Rosen described riding his bicycle and being assaulted by a New York Police Department officer with a baton. The police then stole his bike, refused to identify themselves, and when Rosen asked how he could get it back, they reportedly responded, It's not your bike anymore. Rosen was wearing a helmet with a large press sign on it. The whole time. There's no doubt about there's no doubt there have been several serious physical assaults directed at journalists from a small subset of people attending protests and private citizens have broken cameras and damaged newsroom facilities as well. 14 incidents at the police's hands and 26 by others. At Freedom of the Press Foundation, we forcefully condemn all acts of violence on journalists and urge anyone on the streets to respect their rights. However, when reporting on violence against journalists, this fact bears repeating. The police are violently attacking journalists at a rate greater than 4 to 1 when compared with private citizens. Given the out-of-control militarization of police we have seen over the past two decades, and government's threats to increase its crackdown, that is especially terrifying. And if police departments are not held quickly accountable by state governments will only get worse. Next up, a piece published at CommonDreams.org, written by Jake Johnson. As the nationwide uprisings catalyzed by the police killing of George Floyd continues to bring hundreds of thousands of Americans into city streets around the U.S., Senator Bernie Sanders is urging the Democratic leadership to embrace a slate of specific policy proposals aimed at mitigating the intertwined crises of systemic racism and unaccountable brutality by law enforcement. Quote, I am calling for sweeping policy reforms to protect people, particularly communities of color, who have suffered violence for far too long, the Vermont senator wrote in a letter to Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on Wednesday. Sanders' letter outlines eight policy proposals that the senator says would, if implemented, quote, contribute greatly to the eradication of police violence in this country. Amend the federal civil rights laws to allow more effective prosecution of police misconduct by charging, by changing the standard from willfulness 
to recklessness. Abolish qualified immunity so police officers can be held civilly liable for abuses. Prohibit the transfer of offensive military equipment to police departments. Strip federal funds from departments that violate civil rights. Create a federal model policing program that emphasizes de-escalation, non-lethal force, and culturally competent policing, which access in which access to federal funds depends upon the level of reform adopted. As part of this effort to modernize and humanize police departments, we need to enhance the recruitment pool by ensuring that the resources are available to pay wages that will attract the top-tier officers we need to do the difficult work of policing. Provide funding to states and municipalities to create civilian corps of unarmed first responders to supplement law enforcement such as social workers, EMTs, and trained mental health professionals who can handle order maintenance violations, mental health emergencies, and low-level conflicts to aid police officers. Require agencies to make records of police misconduct publicly available. And require all jurisdictions that receive federal grant funding to establish independent police conduct review boards that are broadly representative of the community and that have the authority to refer deaths that occur at the hands of police or in police custody to federal authorities for investigation. In addition, the boards would be authorized to report to federal authorities other types of abuses by police, including patterns of misconduct. This would be supplemental to current federal authority to commence investigations. Clearly, we need to enhance federal funding for such investigations. We've got to act boldly to eradicate systemic racism and police violence, Sanders tweeted. Sanders' proposals come as House and Senate Democrats are beginning to lay the groundwork for a legislative response to Floyd's killing, which sparked mass demonstrations against police brutality and racism across the U.S. and around the world. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has asked the Congressional Black Caucus to lead the process of drafting a legislative response to the protests that have swept the country following the death of George Floyd. While some critics took issue with elements of Sanders' proposed solutions, particularly the call to raise the pay of police officers, other policies in the platform have been embraced by national civil rights groups. In a letter to congressional leaders of both parties on Monday, More than 400 civil rights organizations expressed support for a ban on the transfer of excess U.S. military equipment to local police departments and abolition of long-standing legal doctrine, giving police sweeping immunity from lawsuits, both of which Sanders embraced. Quote, federal statutory reforms are urgently needed on a range of policing issues, including use of force, police accountability, racial profiling, militarization, data collection, and training, the groups wrote. These recent police killings of residents across the country are part of a longer history of fatal police killings against black people in America and require congressional action immediately. And Ewan Higgins wrote this piece also on congressional action, also published at commondreams.org. Representative Ilhan Omar on Wednesday announced her intention to introduce a legislative package aimed at overhauling the nation's criminal justice system as a nationwide uprising sparked by the murder of George Floyd by four Minneapolis police officers continues. Quote, If we are to change this pattern of violent racism, we need to fundamentally restructure our criminal justice system and our treatment of those advocating for their rights, Omar tweeted. The legislation would provide overarching support for the victims of long-standing and ongoing police violence and are intended to offer solutions for the deep-seated institutional racism that dominates U.S. policing. The suite also includes a sharp rebuke of President Donald Trump's threats to use the Insurrection Act against protesters. The package consists of four bills. The National Police Misuse of Force Investigation Board Act, co-led by Representatives Ayanna Presley and Sheila Jackson-Lee, 
forming a federal commission to investigate police killings around the nation. The bill to criminalize police violence against protesters, which allows for the charging of police officers who attack protesters to be charged with a federal crime. The Amending the Insurrection Act, co-led by Representatives Mark Pocan and Pramila Jayapal, preventing the president from deploying the U.S. military against protesters. And the Federal Relief Fund, providing funding for communities rebuilding after social and economic disasters. Quote, We need systemic solutions to systemic problems, and those closest to the pain must be closest to the solutions, said Omar. And David Sirota had this to write. You can find this at sirota.substack.com. Ten things Dems could do right now if they actually wanted to stop Trump's power grab. Donald Trump yesterday deployed federal police to attack peaceful protesters, all to stage a photo op of himself threatening to militarily invade his own country. In response, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer issued a press release and promised no real action to do anything, days after House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer declared that the U.S. House won't have any floor votes for another month. Democrats would have you believe they are the victims and have no power in this situation, which is, in a word, horseshit. And not just run-of-the-mill horseshit we've all gotten used to. This is especially dangerous horseshit. Because we need them to actually use the power they currently have to oppose what's going on. Right now. They do have real power. The party controls one chamber of Congress that Trump needs to finance his power grab. They also fully control 15 state legislatures and have partial control of another 13 state legislatures. And they control nearly half of the nation's governorships and most major cities' mayoralities, the former of which has authority over the National Guard and the latter of which run the police forces that are committing acts of violence in our streets. That's a lot of power to actually do something right now. So... Exactly what can they do? Here are 10 kinds of things, and many of them can be done unilaterally by House Democrats, by states, and by cities. And they can be done immediately, not at some unspecified time in the distant future. 1. For the love of God, stop trying to give Trump more police power. In the lead-up to the protests, Democratic congressional leaders had been pushing to fortify Trump's police powers. Yes, that's right. They have repeatedly, and at times stealthily, worked with Republicans to try to reauthorize the Patriot Act in a way that would strengthen Trump's warrantless surveillance power. Boosted by groups like Demand Progress, progressive Democratic lawmakers have thankfully helped temporarily stop the reauthorization for now. But Pelosi has been actively trying to revive the legislation, giving Trump more police power, as he promises to violently crush protests, is insane. Stop. Just stop. Number two, do not pass a Pentagon spending bill that would fund Trump's military invasion of American cities. During the Iraq war, Democratic lawmakers gave speeches demanding an end to the conflict and then turned around and cast votes to pass appropriations bills that funded the war. Now we face the prospect of Democratic lawmakers issuing press releases telling Donald Trump to not militarily invade America and then potentially turning right around and voting for spending bills to fund that invasion. That would be absolutely unacceptable. House Democrats can halt the annual Pentagon Appropriations Bill and write various restrictions into it, preventing any resources from being used by the President to deploy troops into American cities without the explicit consent of Congress. They can also amend the Insurrection Act. In 2006, Congress expanded that statute, 
which Trump would rely on to domestically deploy the military. Congress can now go the other way and reform that law in ways that reduce Trump's ability to start civil war in the United States. Number 3. Call Trump's bluff, use his own plan to defund the police, and launch investigations. Trump recently proposed federal budgets cutting funding for local police departments. Democrats control the House that must pass a federal budget. Democrats could just sign on to the president's own past proposals and begin the process of defunding the police. They could also use their House majority to hold televised hearings, spotlighting police abuses, and to issue subpoenas to fully investigate the situation in various cities. And of course, they could also use all of these budget and oversight powers in legislatures, mayor's offices, and city councils to do the same at the state and municipal levels. Number four, stop giving military-grade weapons to local police departments. Research has shown a link between police violence and the use of Pentagon program that provides excess military equipment to local law enforcement agencies. Democrats right now have the power to restrict or fully eliminate that program. They could do it during the upcoming reauthorization of the NDAA, which is the overarching legislation that governs what the Pentagon can and cannot do. Or they could do it on the must-pass annual Pentagon spending bill. In fact, they already have the legislative language to do that. It was tried by some House Democrats in 2014. But Democrats helped the GOP-run House kill it back then. Now that the Democrats control the House, they could just pass it. Number five, fire the bad police chiefs and de-escalate. Democratic mayors can fire police chiefs whose police departments are out of control. If you see rampant acts of police violence, as we've seen in cities across the country, and you see your Democratic mayor standing by the police chief, then your Democratic mayor is complicit. Your Democratic mayor could instead do what Louisville Mayor Greg Fisher just did. After a police shooting there, your Democratic mayor can also order police to halt their antagonistic expressions of martial power, the unnecessary flaunting of heavily armed law enforcement, and the chest-thumping displays of police power are just heightening tensions. Mayors could instead follow the lead of Newark's Ras Baraka. The New York Times reports that his police force has, quote, made a tactical decision not to position police officers in military-style gear along the route. And so far, the city has not seen the kind of violent clashes that we've seen in other population centers. Number six, prosecute the bad cops. Democrats control many district attorney's offices and 22 state attorney general's offices. We've heard a lot about police mass arresting peaceful protesters. We've heard much less about whether or not the Democratic Party We use the prosecutorial authority it has to charge police officers for their brutal acts of violence. Number seven, restrict the National Guard. Democratic governors have the power to use the National Guard to militarize the situation in their states. But until Trump federalizes the National Guard, they also have the power to carefully restrict or demobilize the National Guard's actions and activities. Number eight passed legislation restricting the police and ending immunity. Democratic Representative Ro Khanna has a bill to change use of force standards at the federal level so that under the law, violence must officially be a last resort in police conduct. As he notes, quote, The current legal standard gives nearly unfettered discretion to police over their use of force as long as they claim to perceive a threat even if there were other available options to de-escalate the situation. There is also new legislation by Independent Representative Justin Amash to end the so-called qualified immunity standard that shields police officers and public officials from punishment for violating Americans' constitutional rights. The House could pass both of these bills, and Democratic state legislatures could pass their own versions of these bills as well. 
Number nine, repeal and block anti-protester laws and pass state protections. A recent PEN America report shows that 15 states have passed anti-protester laws and, quote, nearly a third of all states have implemented new regulations on protest-related activity in the past five years. Democrats in legislatures and governorships can work to repeal these laws and block similar new laws. They can also be proactive by using their majorities in blue states like New York to pass packages of much-needed reforms designed to bring accountability to local police departments. Number 10. Stop taking money from police associations. Among the reasons Democrats haven't already used their power to protect civil liberties and create stronger accountability is the influence of money, specifically the very large sums of money that flow into state and local politics from police associations that oppose real accountability. New York State Deputy Majority Leader Mike Giannaris is one of a number of lawmakers who is now saying they will reject this money and donate the money they have taken and use it to protect protesters. This should become a national trend. Again, this is not a comprehensive list. However, it is a reminder that while Trump is the central threat to American liberties right now, we should not believe the Democrats' current narrative that portrays themselves as innocent bystanders. They're in a position to actually deliver on their electoral promises, to do whatever they can to oppose Trump. If they don't use the power they have right now, they are complicit. And I love uh, David Sirota's use of the term innocent bystanders here because it's something that I think we all have an idea of what that means, of what it is to be an innocent bystander. And we usually use the term innocent bystanders that are that become victims, that become caught up in, in, in some ongoing violence. But we can turn this on its head and say, innocent bystanders, these are the people who aren't taking action when faced with a situation that requires or demands action. They're bystanders, but they're not innocent. Next up is a piece published at aljazeera.com, written by Yannick Giovanni Marshall. Black liberal, your time is up. As you ready yourself to attempt to hijack the work of radicals, to go undercover dressed in our clothes and slip into the crowd, pretending that you are always there and that you are us, know that we see you. Even now, as you're preparing your watered-down Black Lives Matter syllabi and your Hope and the Black Spring in the Time of Corona book manuscripts, which are by now ready for press, filled as they are with the same dimly lit unimaginative pablum about, quote, improving race relations, feel-good anti-racism, and, quote, ways to move forward. We see you. We know why you have come. You are here to translate an uprising. You are here to show your black skin so that you can claim the mantle of authority on anti-blackness that white liberals have bestowed upon you. You are here to sit at their pundit tables before their cameras, your face beaming across the world as it provides the safest possible interpretation of a revolution in order to police its possibilities and pave over the threat of abolition with as mild and ineffective a reform as possible. Although uprisings are spearheaded by radicals, we are shut out of the public discussion. Neither the black radical nor black radical thought is given airtime. Instead, we are forced to endure being talked about and having the revolution we fought for be diffused and repackaged to be palatable to a white liberal audience. 
We see you gearing up for your mission. You will not be able to blend into the crowd this time. No interpretation of a revolution is needed. Its commentators should not be the people who yesterday were only too happy to sit at the table with white nationalists and who took smiling pictures with the quote, good police. It cannot be narrated by the same people who alongside their white liberal colleagues jump black radicals, beating us down with tired Martin Luther King Jr. quotes in an attempt to discipline our anger and fix the boundaries of our action. Not by the same people who spew King at every opportunity, wielding him as a cudgel against those whom they have trained in the belief that King is King and his word is law. It is, a cult king, uh, it is a cult of King sustained on the one hand by the power of white liberal media, schools and corporate offices that have bled him of what little anti-colonialism he had in order to parade him for their purposes. And on the other hand, by the effective silencing of his contemporaries and his contemporary critics. We have to endure the silencing of people like Kwame Tur, who said, quote, in order for nonviolence to work, your opponent has to have a conscience. The United States has no conscience. We have endured the silencing of people like Asada Shakur, who said, quote, Nobody in the world, nobody in history, has ever gotten their freedom by appealing to a moral sense of the people who were oppressing them. You have not only been complicit in the silencing of the radicals, but by hogging the mic and having the prerogative on how black struggle is spoken of in its history remembered, you have engineered it. Even as our people are permanently incarcerated or are made refugees and hunted, they die a second death in your willful amnesia. Black radical critics have proven to be right although you would not know it by how little their names are known and how little room you have given them. Get off the mic and give it to the people. Get off the platform and out of the newsroom. Your time is up. For far too long, black liberal, you have been allowed to domesticate black radicalism because our oppressors prefer you to us and at any sign of trouble, rush out to find you to speak on behalf of all black people. You have eagerly taken the chance to hog all of the mics and silence us. You weaken our revolt with your narration. We know that even now you are preparing to invade us with your linked arms, performing that played out, we shall overcome nonsense, in order to reframe destruction in the colony and of the civil order as a quest for policy changes. You have come to firehose the fire in our uprising, while pretending to be angrier and more rebellious than the rebels. As if it were not just yesterday that you were standing shoulder to shoulder with police and politicians begging for calm and agreeing that this is sad. We know that by the immensity of your power and the relative strength of your megaphones, you will have some successes in the coming fraud. But no matter how well you carve and gut this revolution and lay its skin on your face as your mask, we will still see you. We know that when we say abolish prisons and police, you will intercede on behalf of the state and white power with your deliberate mistranslation, saying we ask for, quote, less harsh sentences and more trust between police and the black community. When we say we want this thing over with, you will say we want change. When we say this white supremacist settler colony has anti-blackness in its DNA and is incapable of providing any adequate liberation, you say, quote, America is failing black people. We say we want to get out of here. You ask, how do we move forward? As if we do not hear in your tone the hope that all this unrest can be quelled and we can move quietly on to the next killing. You insist on mistranslating us. Black liberal, your time is up. You have held the mic for too long. Give the mic to any random protester on the street. Any one of them will have something more insightful and analytically sound to say than you do. When you dress us up, when you dress up in clothes with our slogans and go on TV, 
All you do is cry. What are you crying about? I cannot remember the last time I have smiled so much. You have been smiling too long with our oppressors. There is no reason to cry when the resistance comes out. We would have thought you would be ecstatic, all of you who have professed to be interested in change. You who would speak lovingly of the English peasants of 1381, who torch in hand, emerge from the ruins of the Black Death to burn the property of the ruling classes in the hope of emancipating themselves. But now when black people who are forced to witness themselves publicly hunted and tortured to death on a weekly basis rise up, you attempt to coax them away from their cigarette lighters. When the target starts burning down, the black liberal will fight harder to put it out than its owners. But as Malcolm X said, quote, You had another Negro out in the field. The house Negro was in the minority. The masses, the field Negroes, were the masses. They were in the majority. When the master got sick, they prayed that he'd die. If his house caught on fire, they'd pray for a wind to come along and fan the breeze. They gave you the platform, but there are more of us than there are of you. The greatest trick you ever pulled off was to make it seem like it was you who represented the majority of black people, and it were those radically against colonial policing who were few and far between. Now you see us in our thousands. Stop crying. Malcolm X Quote, That Uncle Tom wore a handkerchief around his head. This Uncle Tom wears a top hat. He's sharp. He dresses just like you do. He speaks the same phraseology, the same language. He tries to speak it better than you do. He speaks with the same accents, same diction. When you say, your army, he says, our army. He hasn't got anybody to defend him, but anytime you say we, he says we, our president, our government, our senate, our congressman, our this and our that. And he hasn't even got a seat in that hour, even at the end of the line. So this is a 20th century Negro. Black liberal, as we brace for the second wave of repression from your government, remember that we still see you. When your police, your National Guard, your dogs are sicked on us, when your P.W. Botha, Bull Connor of a president who agitated for a Sharpeville 1960 against the migrants, prepares to commit atrocities, despite our masked shouts, stones, and placards, we still see you. We know why you have come, but you are too late. For the first time in a long while, we have also been seen and know that we are not alone. Before, we might have stepped out sheepishly, politely asking to consider more radical solutions, thinking that we were moving vulnerably, naked and alone, into an open field of attack dogs. But now that we have stridden bravely forth without shield into the centers of white supremacy, we have discovered that we are covered by a multitude of good people. Look at the world we are not alone. As you jump the bandwagon and attempt to wrestle the reins away from us, know that this is a black radicals moment. See us. Black radicals are here to stay. Come up off that mic and get out before you get looted. And take those Barack and Michelle posters with you. They never belong to us. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards Malcolm. Peace after revolution. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2020. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes at Bernie-2020.com. Follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020. Here is Tracy Chapman with Talking About 
a revolution. Thanks for listening. Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know talking about a revolution it sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know talking about a revolution it sounds Gonna rise up and get their share. Poor people gonna rise up and take what's there. Don't you know you better run, 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 But a revolution Yes, finally the tables are starting to turn Talking about a revolution Oh, no Talking about a revolution Oh, while they're standing in the welfare lines Crying to those of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for Talking about a revolution, oh no. Talking about a revolution, oh no. Talking about a revolution.